not long after I was baptized, and that would have been in the early 1980s, and I, um, our high school band went to this contest in Gravit, Arkansas. And so you often go to these events because you get out of school or you get to be with your friends and you, you hang out. There's not much to do in Gravit, Arkansas. Wasn't then, isn't now. And we were meeting people from other schools and talking and walking around and visiting the concession stand for about the fifth time. And there was a young man who was preaching over behind the bleachers. He was a revival-style evangelist, but just an ordinary-looking young man, probably a little older than high school age, but he was declaring the gospel and just lining it out very plainly. And he would look into the audience, and he would ask questions. And so my friends and I wandered up to just because it was a spectacle. We wanted to see what was happening. And he started asking people, are you saved? Are you saved? He would look right at us. Are you saved? And he'd want an answer. Are you saved? And he looked at me and he said, are you saved? I said, well, I hope so. He said, hope so. You you need to know so. And then he goes on and he keeps preaching. And I just felt like, who does he think he is? He didn't know if he's saved. And boy, that bugged me. Him going on like that, asking everybody, are you saved? I knew better than that. I knew that you weren't supposed to be so arrogant as to claim that you absolutely were saved because I had been taught that most of us who go to church regularly aren't getting into heaven. I had been taught that most of us are going to burn in hell no matter what we do. And I lived among fearful people who were trying to get God to be kind to them. And they knew that there were sins that no matter what they did, they could never be forgiven of it because some of them were in an eternal state of sin for one reason or another. Some of them couldn't get over it. Oh, they were trying so hard, but they thought, if I'll just keep trying harder and harder, then maybe I'll be saved. And many a time I was told, no one can be so arrogant as to think that they're saved. I don't really remember specifically where I learned that, but it was there. And still I heard that street preacher and his question, do you know if you're saved? And it stuck with me, and it still sticks with me to this day. That's why I can tell this story. Somewhere along the line, and I don't remember where, I picked up 1 John. And someone showed me 1 John by starting at the end of the book. And that's where we're going to start. So if you want to take a look at 1 John chapter 5, and it really picks up in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse 13. Now, you know, I, I told you to go there and look at it, didn't I? Yeah. Well, don't. Because um, I want you to hear me read it. Uh, Mark Atkinson asked me what version I'm going to be using. Well, we'll start out with the message. And I want you to hear it from the message Because many of the English translations of 1 John get wordy. 
Because 1 John is the first book you learn to translate in most Greek studies, and I think everybody gets very confident about it. But Peterson has done a good job here in that he, he, he translates it to a language that we can hear. So, and in fact, I'll even take that off the screen. There you go. Now listen. Here's 1 John through Peterson's translation. My purpose in writing is simply this. That you who believe in God's Son will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. The reality and not the illusion. And how bold and free we then become in His presence. Freely asking according to His will. Sure that He's listening. And if we're confident that He's listening, we know that what we've asked for is as good as ours. For instance, if we see a Christian believer sinning, now clearly I'm not talking about those who make a practice of sin in a way that is fatal, leading to eternal death. But if we see a a Christian believer who is sinning and we ask for God's help, then he will gladly give it. He gives life to the sinner whose sin is not fatal. There is such a thing as a fatal sin, and I'm not urging you to pray about that. Everything we do wrong is sin, but not all sin is fatal. Okay, don't worry about that fatal sins and unfatal sins business right now. We'll get to that later. But did you hear that line from Peterson? And here it is. uh, I think this is the NIV. If I had known this that day in Gravit, what would you advise me that my answer should have been that day? Well, now I know the Bible says that, preacher, but you never can be sure. (laughs) What's it going to take? If we can't trust in the Bible, what's it going to take? Well, I know the Bible says this, but now, you know. Okay, that's the Bible, folks. That's what we've got to insist on. I like the way Peterson did it, so that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And here, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's the thing. This points to the reality that you and I can have a knowledge or a confidence of eternal life. That we have it. And during the next few weeks, what I want to try to show you is not only is um, that a good thing, like, something wonderful to have, it's essential. John is writing to a group of people whose confidence has been shattered. There are people who have told them that if they don't know certain things, then they don't have all the knowledge that they're supposed to have. And their knowledge is lacking and incomplete. And so they're probably not the best Christians they can be. And John is writing to tell them, That's just not the case. That's not how. We don't know things because we go to more school. We don't know things because we we, we have secret knowledge. We don't know things because we've learned it from certain people. We don't know things because we know how to read the secret uh, languages of the Bible or we can read between the lines in the Bible. We know things because of Jesus Christ. And he's going to emphasize that. And so uh, uh, between now and our next Sunday night, I want to encourage you to read 1 John through that lens. Now, let's move over to the front of the book, 1 John 1. 
I'll just read from the message again since I have it here. He says, from the very first day, we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this. This infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it. We heard it. And now we're telling you so that you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. Uh, Whatever your translation says there, you can see that the opening words of John's letter is, we were there, we saw it, we beheld it. Their senses are engaged. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him. It's not accidental that John's the one who gives us the account of Thomas who says, is it really you? He says, go ahead, put your hand right here on my side. Feel the scars. There's a, there's a, you know, there's a tangibility to John's writing. He's saying, oh, this was real. This was real. We, we testify to it, and we want you. But here's the thing. At no point does John say, now, we saw this for real, and I know you weren't there, and so you can't really experience it. He never said that, did he? He said, even though we were there, you can experience it too, and we want you to experience it with us. So he's not making this a secret knowledge. He's not making this an exceptional level of experience that you and I just can't have. He hasn't walled off the first century as, hey, this was a special time. The rest of you, though, ah, you're just kind of out of luck. You know? He says you can experience it too. And he has a generational view. Now, to get us started in this, I want to show you some of the basic questions that John answers, questions that we bring to the text. Or I'm going to actually suggest the questions that we can be bringing to the text. And these, these questions serve as examples, but, but it, it, it rings of the big questions throughout his letter. So what we're going to do now is an overview rather than a chapter-by-chapter study for tonight. This is just a big flyover so you can get the sense of it. First question John's dealing with is, how do we know that God loves us? Oh, well, now wait. Is that really a big question? Yeah, it is. My experience in ministry and preaching has been that despite the fact that this is the most basic point of Christianity, this is the one that I don't know how this happens, that even God's people fail to get this. That often we think of God as an angry God who's dissatisfied and disappointed. Yeah, sure, you see it in Scripture. I mean, I know that in Scripture. There's these occasions where God has wrath and he's, um, you know, he's angry. But Paul writes confidently in Romans that the grace of God and the love of God, the mercy of God, is greater than sin. I think we've got the, the weight of centuries of Western preaching and western theology that emphasized a kind of a piety a kind of a a christian living 
that lived under the rule of an angry God. And, and, and that's just kind of rooted in our historical DNA. I don't know how to put that, but it's a, it's a tradition, it's a trend. And unfortunately, there's another, there's another tendency to, to swing the pendulum away from that, and that is to just make God into a big teddy bear, to make God just a warm fuzzy, or to ignore him altogether and say, well, that's just silly, superstitious, fearful nonsense. Let me ask you this. The people that you love most in your life, do you ever fuss with them? Sure you do. I'm hearing muttered laughter because you know it's true. The people that we love the most are the ones that we fuss with because we care. When you go back and you look at the Old Testament, everybody tends to think that God is just this tyrannical, evil, angry God in the Old Testament who's always looking for someone to smash. No, I just think that we're trying to read it through uh, Western goggles and we're very shaped by English-speaking British traditions where, or Greek thinking, where in fact in the Old Testament, really God's just kind of, I don't know, he's, he's kind of he's Middle Eastern. He's, you know, he's like, he loves his people. There's a lot of love. There's a lot of emotion there. They're just, he's more expressive. He shows up in the Garden of Eden. They're hiding from him. And God shows up and he says, where are you? We're hiding. Why? Because we're naked. Who told you you're naked? He's God. He's supposed to know, right? The story gives us this image of a God who cares, who's invested, who's throwing in on this. He cares about his people. So when we see God's anger, it's because we have a relationship with him and we're close to him. But 1 John, he, he, he says, we knew him. So how do we know that God loves us? This is important, people. We know it because he sent his one and only son so that we might live through him. Now, everybody has heard of John 3.16. Even people who've never been to church have heard of 3.16. It used to be that 3.16 meant, uh, I've got a message for you. Like, I've got a 3.16, you know, because you see the guys at the sports games, John 3.16, they hold it up. Nobody even really knows what that means anymore. It's just, hey, there's a message, John 3.16. It's trivialized the importance of the message that was from God. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, it's interesting that in our, in our uh, kind of, and I, I don't know if this is true. You ask yourself if this is true. You, you, can, you can judge for yourself. But I've noticed something that over the years that I've read that is that there's kind of a, a tendency, a traditional understanding to attach that to the death of Jesus. God sent his one and only son to die for our sins. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that in 1 John either. Now, I'm not saying that that's not true. But God's sending of Jesus is not just sending him out to die. That's a reduction of the gospel, an oversimplification God is sending Jesus out to rescue. God is sending Jesus out to save. The fact that he died, it fits into God's plan, but in some ways, if you read Scripture, it's our sin that causes it, not because somebody has to die for our sin, but because we're so sinful that we kill the one who was sent to be our Savior and Rescuer. 
we're, that in that way, we're culpable. He sent his one and only son so that we might live through him. You know, love promises that there's going to be more, that it's not just going to be a tragic situation, but there's going to be a promise, a hope, a confidence. So, uh, God loved us first, we're told in 1 John. Uh, this is love. When you're reading 1 John for yourself, notice how many times love comes up. God loved us first. That's how we know. We don't have to prove ourselves to God. We don't have to show God how much we love Him so that He'll have favor on us. No, He loved us first. We're the ones who are returning love. Uh, you've got statements like John 3.16 that God sent His Son so that those who believe in Him may have eternal life. God doesn't want us to perish and die. Jesus gave his life for us. And by the way, I think that's important. Jesus isn't just the, sometimes we make Jesus out to be the fall guy in the gospel. He's the, you know, he's the patsy. He's the guy that has to take the blame. Jesus gives his life. Um, now that, that 316 there um, is, John, is not John 316. That's 1 John 316. Okay? 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. The death of Jesus is not God putting up his own sacrifice so that all of us will be okay. It's Jesus actually laying down his life for us. He submits himself. He surrenders himself so that we might live. He freely gives. Now, that's love, says John. Um, how do we know that God loved us? Well, that we're called God's children. At, at 3 1 in 1 John, he's saying, he's saying, Behold. You know, did they sing that song in Guyana, Behold What Manner of Love the Father? Did they sing that? Do you remember that? Did they not? They did that in some of the Caribbean places. The first place I ever heard that song. And it's this little song that says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold what manner. And it's taken right there from 1 John. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we should be called the sons of God. And it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful little song that they sing. And it, it's sung in a round. But it's that, it starts out with that behold. You know, behold. Which is, would you take a look at how much God loves us. And here you have this idea of lavishing. God has lavished his love on us. He's poured it out. He, in other words, God's not reserved. You know, it was a, it was a rare thing. In fact, it, it, it was so rare for my grandfather to say, I love you, that I don't think he ever said it. And it was so awkward that you wouldn't want him to. It just, it just didn't fit, you know. You knew that he loved you. You knew that he cared about you. But that wasn't him. He's kind of a tough guy. So, you know, he's not going to say, I love you, you know. He'd say something like, you did all right. You did well. Mm, you know, that kind of thing. But God's not reserved like that. It's like he's just pouring out love. You're my kids is what he's saying. John's saying, there's no secret to this. Now, my dad, on the other hand, you know, oh, he, tell, he tells you he, lo he loves you all the time. God, he says, is like that. He's just pouring out this love. Uh, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called his children. 
So this is how we know what love is. Now, that means something. That means that we should love God, that's 5-2, and that we should love one another. We're going to pick those up as we look at this into the, in, in the future. Okay, next question. How do we know then what's true and what's false? I mean, if you're going to know something, if you're going to have confidence and know something, then you want to make sure that what you know is true. What do you do when someone comes along and says, you know, I don't know, everything that we've thought might be true, might be wrong. What do you do with that? Or what if everything that we thought we knew is wrong and we do need to correct our thinking? How are we going to know the difference? Where's the, what's the test? What's, the, what's the, the measurement? Well, John helps us. He says, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is false. There's, there's a core test to truth. The, the core test of truth is recognizing the Spirit of God in things. The problem with false prophets, and he says there's a lot of false prophets who've gone out in the world. That's, that's chapter 4, and we'll look at that in the future as well. The false prophets have tampered with this message about Jesus, and that's the sure sign that they're false. Uh, they left the fellowship of believers because they did not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Son of God. When you look into chapter 2, you'll see that that's the real problem. It's not that they have made a few mistakes or they've made some calculation errors. That's not the problem. It's not that they, um, you know, they've got some bad ideas about the way that they practice communion or that they, uh, they read from the wrong translations or something. It's not those sort of things. There's something big, a huge, a fatal flaw in their teaching and their gospel that they're preaching. That's the problem. See, you're going to find a lot of different variants on things. And other scriptures like Romans 14 will tell us that there's variance. Now, it's, it's always a debate as to, well, what's a debatable issue and what's not a debatable issue? I think 1 John's going to help us with that as well. Um, in, in John's time, some of the things that they were debating was whether or not you can eat this food or can you eat that food or can you eat this meat? Can you not eat this meat? And, you know, could, should you get married in this case, not married in this case? People were debating all those sorts of things. There was probably some room for disagreement. But on this, this is the line between true and false. Um, Every spirit, then, that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's a spirit from God. That's a spirit of truth. And those who do not do that are not from God. I'm going to illustrate this for you because I think this is very helpful in all of this. What you've got is you've got a situation where Let's let this, here you go. I don't remember how far this goes. Here we go. Okay. So you've got the gospel, this message about Jesus Christ. As John says, this message that he came in the flesh, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Son of God. That's the spirit of truth. And if you can confess that, acknowledge that, proclaim that, admit that, then you're, you're, you're right there. That's the center. Now, we think that as you get further from the center, you're getting further away from the truth. But what if actually this sets the circumference of a group where there is, and and you have verses like Romans 14, Colossians 2, 
Uh, even Second John 9, John in his writings will, 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 will speak about differences. But there's still a unity within those differences. Where you cross the line is when you get away from this foundational truth about Jesus Christ, who he is. That's when you step over into falsehood. When you've gone that far, you've gone too far. It can't be supported anymore. That's like taking the axle right out of a wheel on your car. The wheel may be as round as it ever was, but it's not going to do you much good. Because it's not attached anymore. It's been unpinned. It's been set loose and it's useless. The gospel testimony about Jesus is both the core and the boundary. We'll come back to that some too. But one of the things that this helps us with is uh, God's truth overcomes the wisdom of the world. You're going to see that in John. Also, uh, we can know the truth then. I mean, if it's as simple as getting back to that core message, the one that John starts out with, he says, we were there, we saw him, we beheld him, we touched him, we heard him. That's the gospel. If it's that, then we can know the truth. There's not something we're missing. There's not something we need to go find. We don't have to research more clues or more data. So we can set our hearts, and here's the thing. Not only does this become something about knowledge and and an understanding and a, a rational thing, but it also becomes an emotional thing, a spiritual thing. Because we can set our hearts at rest in God's presence when we know that we belong to the truth. There's a lot of talk in 1 John about knowing that you can approach God. Knowing that even when our hearts condemn us, guess what? There's someone who's greater than our hearts. There's someone who knows us better than we know ourselves. There's a creator that knows us and can forgive us despite that. So, um, let's see. Yeah, we'll come back to that next time we come into this. Last question. How do we know that we know God and abide in him? I mean, what if we think we know God, but maybe we're deluded? Well, here's how we know. Whoever claims to abide in God must live as Jesus did. Now here again is this word abiding that John used in in John chapter 15. Uh, Actually, Jesus uses it. Um, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. What does it mean to abide? It means to remain, to stay close to. I'm still unpacking that word abide, but to abide in Jesus means that we are placing our life into his. There is a, almost a synchronizing of our life with his life. And so if we claim to abide in God, then it's going to show up in the way we live. It's going to be a natural fit. It's going to be part of the process. So, for example, you recognize the children of God by the way they live. This isn't, that, this isn't the business of fruit inspectors and all that and everybody judging each other. This is about us tapping into the person, the living person of Jesus Christ and letting that become who we are. It's about our identity being shaped by Christ. Now, often we're too busy worried about, well, are they really like us or not? Hey, focus on yourself first. That's what, that was Jesus' teaching. And then it's going to become evident. Let me put it like this. You know, we're always trying to size each other up. You know, are they a Christian? Are they not a Christian? You ever met a happy person? Yeah, you've met a happy person. Surely you have. I don't think any of you are that sheltered, are you? I mean, you know, we, we, you've met happy people. You know it. 
You know they're a happy person. You've met generous people. You know that. Likeable people. We probably don't think about that until somebody brings it up. But you just know it. Why? Because we know it on a level that we can't even explain because we see it. We see it in their life. We see it in their behavior. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever met a grouchy person? Yeah. You know it. Nobody has to point it out to you. You're not just hanging out with that person, and then somebody, somebody someday says, did you know that they're a grouchy person? I didn't realize that. And then all of a sudden you start noticing it. Oh, my. It's the same way with the people who are God's children. We notice it. I love the stories that people say when they say, you know, at first I didn't believe in God. At first I wasn't sure about God. At first I wasn't sure about the church. And then I got to know God's people. There was one woman, she was an elder's wife in Texas, and she used to say, what helped me get into the church was I was loved into the church. People showed her. Yeah, that's, that's a story that some of you have, too. You see it lived out in a real way, and that's the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of Christ. And that's what people need to see when they come among us. So this is not just, I want you to, to know this, this isn't just a mental exercise or a curriculum exercise. You know, we're not going to win people because we've got the right curriculum. Okay? We're not going to win people because we've got the right slogans or the right statements or the right methodology. It's when they see us truly and genuinely living these things. That means we need to know them. We need to understand them. We need to study them. We need to share them with one another. And then we need to abide in Christ and we need to live it out in our lives. That's why John will also talk about confessing Christ. We're going to rely on God's love. He'll talk about walking in the light. You've got a choice. You can walk in darkness. You can walk in light. He'll, he'll say things like, okay, well, if you claim that you love God, then you've also got to love your brothers and sisters. Anyone that claims he loves God and hates his brother and sister, no, that's not real. That's not genuine. It doesn't compute. So we obey his commands. We obey his commands. Why? Because we love him. Because we know he loves us. Because we, we're living in that love. We're abiding in it. And we follow and practice the command to love one another. These are the sort of things that 1 John is going to bring out to us. I want us to have this sort of confidence here and in here and as we walk. Because I want to put it to you like this. I look around this group tonight and I see mature Christians. You are, you, you've been at this for a while. And here's what I want to encourage because... I think a lot about this congregation and the mission that God has given us. And I'm going to tell you a few things. If we're really going to reach out, it's going to take people like you. It's going to take people with your experience. And at this point, you know, maybe you're backing off and you're saying, oh, I don't know what I have to offer. I don't know. How long have you been a Christian? If you've got more than, say, let's say, just 10 years in Christianity, you've got something to share. You've been there. You, we will see in 1 John, he'll talk about the different ages. He'll talk about the young ones, and then the, he'll talk about the, the, the infants, and then the young men, and then the old ones. And they all have a greater and an increasing knowledge of God. It would be a shame if we squander the resource that we have in this room tonight. If 
Cade and Rachel and these students do their job, and they start reaching out to these students over here. Some of them who are right here in this community, some of them who are from other countries. And if all of us sit back like retirees and just say, oh, I'm so glad somebody's reaching out. Nothing for me to do, though. I'm just an old retired player. Just send me to the glue factory. No. No, I'm not buying that. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. And I'm not going to let you away with that. And I'm not going to let you talk very long if you tell me things. If you say, I just don't know what I can do. I'm not, uh... You've got something. You've got something to share. Even if it's just the relationship with these young people or old people who are coming to Christ and they've never known him before. God puts you in places every day in your walk of life where you're sharing the gospel whether you know it or not. You do not have to be a learned expert like me, if that is what I am, to share the gospel. I didn't, I didn't study and learn and, and, and train to do this so that I could be the only person who does this. I am not the evangelist. I'm an evangelist, and so are you. The qualifications that John said was, we know Jesus. We saw him. We were there. We know him. And if you know him, you can share in this. So I don't want you to hear this as a scold. I don't want you to hear this as a scold. I don't want you to hear this as me haranguing you and saying you've got to do more to win more souls to Jesus. I'm saying put your confidence in God. Put your confidence in Christ. Trust in that. And then the knowledge that you already have, the experience that you already have, put it out there so that people can gain from it. If you were like me and you lived those years where you were like, well, gee, I'm just not sure. I just don't know. That's Okay. You don't have to be the one that you're confident in. Be confident in Christ. We have confidence in Christ, even if we don't have confidence in ourselves. I don't have confidence in myself, because I mess up a lot. I get that. But I have confidence in Christ. And when I'm talking to people, I say, you know, don't, don't hit your wagon to me. Don't put your trust and faith ultimately in me. I want you to trust me. I want to be trustworthy. But we all need to go and see the Master we all need to go to the Savior who saves us. And if I'm confident that he saved me, I'm confident he can save you. Now, you have those stories. And maybe you need to practice and rehearse telling those stories. But as we reach out to more people, and it might not just, you know, I'm not limiting it to the campus ministry. The work that we do now at the Hope Chest. Always keep in mind, that's not about shirts and pants and shoes. That's just part of it. That's the surface. It's not about blue jeans. Blue jeans Sunday, September 11. There you go. There's a plug, okay? But that's not the goal. That's not the goal. The goal is to meet people. I hope that as you're, you know, if you, you might say, I don't know if I can go down to the hope chest and work. You know, I'm not, I'm not strong enough to sort clothes and lift things and all that. Uh, what about the person who goes down there and prays with people who come in? What about the person who goes down there and just shares a word of hope, a word about Jesus, or is there ready to make a witness? Oh, I don't know if I know enough. You don't know enough? Do you know Jesus? Then you know enough. There's an opportunity in all of these ministries. 
And I think that we will see what we call, we call it growth, okay? The goal is not to grow this church. The goal is to share the good news of God's love with a world that often doesn't know it. But to do that, we're going to have to open these walls. We're going to have to go out beyond these walls so that people can know how much God's people love them. They love them because they know how much God loves them. And we can know that. All right. I'll just stop right there, and I trust that you've got it. And if you don't, then come back next week. We're going to sing this song, and maybe some of you need to partake of communion which is an invitation of God to his table because he loves us. Remember that God has loved us so much that he calls us his children. He's lavished his love on us. Please don't leave here tonight doubting that. Know how much he loves you and, and, and how much he's done to save you. Let's stand, let's sing this song, and then after this song, Russ will dismiss us in prayer.